I'm Colleen, and this podcast is an inside look at recovery, which I define as a lifelong journey to get out of your own way and become your own best friend. Join me for mindset upgrades that move you from worry and regret to resilience and confidence. I'll share easy strategies for how to feel better without having to make major changes. Because it's not what you do, it's who you are. Self-care is the path to recovery because our needs are not negotiable. Hello and happy Monday, everybody. So this episode is going to be the same title as a webinar that I'm doing, and this will actually publish first. So if you're a listener of the podcast, you will get the content of the webinar before it shows up on Instagram or Facebook. But um, if you aren't listening to this on the date that it's published, you may notice that this uh, webinar is the same as what you're seeing out there. And it's not exactly the same. This is actually my practice. I'm practicing because it's a lot easier for me to record a podcast than it is to talk on a camera. Uh, That just comes with, you know, eye contact and hand movements and all this. And I can sit here in my pajamas and record this. So the title of the webinar and the, the, the subject of the next 30 minutes is going to be talking about why it is that women who identify as, quote, sober, often struggle in recovery. And I want to issue a trigger warning, so please listen carefully. I want to issue a trigger warning because if you are happy where you're at with alcohol and sobriety and you are a person who identifies as sober, then this is not for you. Because whatever you think about alcohol and sobriety has gotten you to where you're at, to this moment. And everything you're experiencing about sobriety is not a result of the lack of alcohol, it's a result of the things that you're thinking. And so if you are happily identifying as sober, or at least satisfied with where you're at and you feel like the strategies you're using are working, then turn this episode off. You don't need to fix what isn't broken. And if you've found a solution that's working for you, and that includes identifying as, quote, sober, keep doing it. Do not mind me. This is just another opinion. This The webinar I'm going to put on in this episode is really for people, especially women, who are struggling because they think sobriety is hard or complicated or just overly dramatic. So if you don't think that, please opt out. Just ask yourself right now, am I content with my thinking about identifying as sober? Are my beliefs serving me well? And if the answer is yes, then stop here, move on. If, however, you are avoiding calling yourself sober or thinking that doesn't feel right to you, there are some things that you should know. Research, actual scientific research, shows that the only thing we know for sure about recovery from substance use disorders and addictions is that there is no one-size-fits-all approach. What matters most in your recovery 
is what matters to you. The black and white thinking is a barrier to change. And the best results that people or programs get out there are when people are presented with options about the way they're thinking about their situation. Having options leads to much better outcomes. There is also very strong evidence that labeling people as alcoholics or addicts has a negative impact, as does telling people that lifelong abstinence is the only option and that that's not even a cure. The truth is brain imaging shows the brain does and can heal. And adopting an open-ended experimental approach based on curiosity actually leads to the best outcomes. Learning how to read your own body language and respond to your own needs based on what you feel like they are instead of what you think that they are is, is the path to recovery. Because changing the way you think and being flexible in your opinion about a problem changes the way you feel about it and how you react to it and how you go about generating solutions. But, you know, this opinion is popular in the sober community. And the truth is the strongest opinions are usually the least informed. And I, for one, am standing up against the bullies who are demanding that we all think the same way. We have a right to our own recoveries. We have a right to decide what works for us based on what works for us. But alternative ideas threaten the rule makers. And this approach goes against convention, but conventional approach only works for 10 to 15% of the people. And that is why I issued a warning. If you're still listening and you're in the 10 to 15%, You don't need to listen to this because you're safe. And again, if you are worried that what I'm telling you kind of feels threatening to your recovery, listen to your intuition. That's literally my takeaway message anyway. That's exactly where I'm going, is that you should do what feels right and what feels safe and what feels good to you. I don't want to offend people. But my recovery has taught me to stand in my truth, to tell my story and to be honest about my experience. Because I know there are women out there and people, men too, I'm sure, who just like myself know deep in our hearts that there is more to life than alcohol. Like it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Alcohol does not deserve the credit we give it, that it makes some people's lives better and then it destroys other people's lives. It's just a drug. You can take it or not. How much you take is going to depend on how much it affects you. And for those of us that want to define our own recoveries, there is a solution that allows us to escape our preoccupation with alcohol, not be permanently defined by it. And that's how I start out the webinar. Um, So my question that I pose is, if staying 100% sober for the rest of your life is the actual solution to problematic drinking, then why does the approach feel so hard and complicated and overly dramatic? Shouldn't the solution feel like the solution? 
And so in this webinar, I'm going to be explaining why identifying as, quote, sober can actually hurt your recovery, again, especially if you're a woman. And so I start with a riddle. What do heavy drinkers and sober people have in common? Well, I used to think that it, it's, there, it's a group of people, both groups are people who can't or couldn't control their drinking. And that is one way to look at it, but that's also a really myopic view. If you pull out and look at the broader perspective, you'll notice, as you probably already have, that both drinkers and sober people are just really focused on the subject of alcohol. And I have a joke here, you know the joke, how do you know if someone's vegan? Or how, how do you know if a person runs marathons? Or if they have a Vitamix? Or in this case, how do you know if somebody's sober? Uh, punchline please, they already told you. And from day one of my recovery, I really noticed that the heavy emphasis on talking about drinking and why you were drinking and continually focusing on alcohol really felt like it was it was holding me back. You know, it's like, are, am I going to live in the shadow of the past or or is this my fresh start? Like, is this my new beginning? That's what I wanted it to be. And now three years into sobriety. I am like throwing all my fear into the wind. Like I am not gonna define myself as a woman who used to have a drinking problem and let that make decisions for me. It has been long enough and I have done the work to get to a place where I can trust myself. Trust myself including to make a mistake and to self-correct. You know, if the first time I had a glass of wine, I had realized that this isn't a good idea, I would have not self-abandoned. I would not have hidden that. I would have said, I don't think this was good. And if it felt like it awoken the monster, I would have asked for help. I would have figured it out because I trust myself that I ain't going back to those problems. And so I believe that this approach where you know, you're just more open and curious and not just accepting the rank and file a path to 100% abstinence should apply or be included or offered to people um, who meet the following criteria. So if you have tried to quit or significantly curtail your drinking multiple times and you fail, um, you've tried drinking in moderation, you've tried going to meetings, you've read the quitlet, you're listened to podcasts and you've even seen therapists and counselors and maybe you're able to stay sober for weeks or even months at a time but here's the caveat once you feel good again so the alcohol's out of your system you're running on all cylinders you feel like you're in control you feel like you've turned a corner you let your guard down foolishly believing you're on solid ground only to get burned by your own confidence. And that's why you feel like you can't trust your own judgment. That's the real problem. The stigma of sobriety has already been planted in your head. The idea that you might be an alcoholic and all the things that that means and that go with that doom you to failure. And that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The stigma of sobriety is literally a mind virus. It's a bad idea that takes on a life of its own, 
in your life. So let's say you have a period of sobriety and then you try to reintroduce alcohol and you slip up. Okay. Well, instead of viewing it as a learning opportunity to go back to the drawing board, to examine your stress, your needs, your intentions when you went to have the drink, your habits, you know, why did you have the drink? Instead of looking at that situation with curiosity and to see what you can learn from it to make improvements moving forward, you see it as proof that there's something wrong with you. And the negativity bias, where you basically see whatever it is you're looking for, and worst case scenarios, because you're stressed out, start spinning you in circles of guilt and shame and frustration and self-doubt. But the truth is, there's never anything wrong with you. There's just whatever is going on and how you respond. It's your thoughts and feelings about yourself that are making you feel bad, not the alcohol. I mean, of course, a hangover hurts, yes, but alcohol is only amplifying the anxiety that's already there. So I want you to try a simple thought experiment. And by the way, these thought experiments are one of the strategies that I teach with my clients, especially in the next chapter. Um, A thought strategy is when we try on an idea, like a pair of shoes, to see if it fits, to see if it feels good, to see if it lifts our heart, like, oh yeah, that does seem good, or, and, if it moves our ass in the right direction. Does it motivate us to take proactive behaviors? Because believe it or not, you can choose the thoughts that you think, and you do it all the time by accident. You hear something that makes sense and you think, yeah, that sounds legit. So you can learn to choose your thoughts on purpose. I did this just this morning when I got out early and took my dog for a walk. And right as I was done, the dog went off on another lap and did not. we did not discuss that. She just decided to do that. And I had been kind of on a schedule. Like I said, I got out there early and I wanted to be home so that I could get some stuff done for my day. And suddenly, right when I'm ready to go, the dog is gone. And it's not my first rodeo. I understand how this is gonna go. And it's probably gonna be 30 minutes. And what I need to do is just do another loop around the, the woods and then suddenly she's back by my side. Well, I was pissed. And that's the second time she's done that this week. And my mind started worrying, whirling, worrying around about all the things that I needed to be doing and now I'm late and I, I was just really getting mad. Well, pause and notice the present moment. It was a beautiful morning, and by beautiful, I mean it was slightly rainy, a heavy fog, and the sun wasn't coming up, so it was just kind of this soupy mix. Those are some of my favorite kind of days. And I could react to the situation with anger, but I realized in that moment that I'm going to feel whatever it is I'm thinking. So instead of thinking how late I was and how mad I was, I started thinking, I am so lucky that I get to do another lap around the woods. And it wasn't 100% conversion, but the more I focused on how beautiful I thought the day was and how lucky I am to have a dog who I intended to kill as soon as I find her, 
as much as 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 quickly as I started focusing on the good things, the the anger and the frustration started to lose its steam. It did not go away completely, but that is um, a strategy that I use and it actually works. The more the words in my brain were, I'm so lucky to be doing another lap in the woods. I love this day. I'm excited about my day. That's why I feel a little anxious that I'm not back at home, but it's okay. I'm going to get there. Dog's going to be good. You know, but the more I focused on those thoughts, the better I felt. So here's your thought experiment. What if you're not an alcoholic? What if you're actually suffering from emotional disconnect, which means that your thoughts and feelings about your drinking and probably lots of other things create so much stress that your emotional circuit breakers blow and you lose access to the willpower that you would normally have when you're not in survival mode. When you're disconnected due to emotional stress, your ability to self-correct is MIA. And circle that back to my dog thing. If I had continued to piss myself off with the story that I'm mad and I'm late and this this should not be happening, I could literally have gotten myself so worked up that my emotional circuit breakers blow. And then in that moment, I would lose access to my willpower and discipline. You know, and I'm obviously not going to go home and drink, but you can see how that if you don't realize that you can control your mind, and for me in that moment, just because my dog's out, you know, doing laps around the woods doesn't mean I have to let my brain, like a wild horse, chase the dog. Like, just stop. Just breathe. It's going to be okay. So we actually create a lot of our own stress. And that's a skill that you can learn to manage your mind so you can stop being the greatest source of your own stress. And the the biggest misconception is that all that stress that we're experiencing when we're drinking is going to go away when we get sober. But sobriety doesn't cure that emotional disconnect. That's a thinking problem, not a drinking problem. Healing though, but but healing the disconnect, working on the thinking does tend to cause sobriety because you're no longer wanting to give your, your power away to your own stupid brain. You want to stay in control. You want to process your feelings, not numb them. You want to manage them. So, you know, just consider yourself fairly warned if you lean into where I'm going to go with this with emotional sobriety it may actually have the side effect of causing real sobriety. And actually it does, totally 100%. So let's talk about the emotional disconnect. And I'll talk to you, I'm going to give you seven symptoms about uh, what that looks like and what that feels like that you, if this applies to you, you're, be, you're going to be experiencing whether you're still drinking or if you're sober. Like I said, sobriety doesn't cure the emotional disconnect. So number one is that you suffer from brain fog uncertainty and a lack of focus and that the brain fog uncertainty and lack of focus keeps you stuck often in a funk you're just in an emotional funk and it prevents you from enjoying your life number two is that you tend to rely on caffeine or alcohol or medications 
or whatever supplement like CBD or whatever or pot or something that that so you tend to rely on substances to wake up and to get a second wind and to calm down and to go to sleep. So you're trying to regulate your nervous system with external substances. Number three, uh, another symptom is that you waste time mindlessly scrolling through media on your phone, Netflix, whatever. And you know this, you know you're wasting time, but you can't seem to stop yourself. That's a sign of disconnect. And then because you can't stop yourself, you feel overwhelmed too overwhelmed to, you know, do the basics. You're not going to work out. You're not going to cook healthy or batch prep your food on the weekends. You don't read books for fun or pursue hobbies that interest you or even go to bed early because you're overwhelmed and you feel like you don't have enough time. The fifth sign, which was so me, oh my God, I would have such trouble making simple decisions. Like it would spin me out to try to figure out if I'm going to take a shower or not. Do I wash my hair today or do I not? Or, you know, the question what's for dinner absolutely blows my circuit breakers. Like, ugh. And that is how I kind of showed up to everything. I was overthinking everything. I could not make a simple decision. That's a sign of emotional disconnect. The sixth sign is that you operate on autopilot, which means you're just in your head and feeling so distracted that you're just going through the motions. And when you're doing that, you're not present for the little moments that give you joy because you're not paying attention. You're disconnected. And finally, the seventh one is that you're performing the role of yourself. Whenever you're around people, you're on. You're you're a lot more pleasant. You've got the jokes, you've got, you know, the food that you brought to share. You've you've got all your shit together. But then when you get alone, you feel agitated and depressed. And in fact, if that applies to you, most people, this is why most people that know you would be surprised to know that you're struggling because you present like you have it all together. So if you are recognizing yourself in these symptoms of emotional disconnect, you are for sure not an alcoholic. You're disconnected from yourself, from your body. This is happening in your nervous system. Alcohol is not the cause or the cure, as you probably already know. (laughs) In my personal experience, and also many of the clients that I work with, the real cause of this emotional disconnect is usually perfectionism. Because you've trained yourself to be so much more concerned with how things look to other people or to everybody around you, instead of how they actually feel to you. The optics of any situation matter to you far more than your experience of it. And that is just where your focus is. You can train your brain to focus on yourself. That's what I teach, okay? Um, But that is perfectionism, you know? And that's not a compliment. If you are like I was, you might pride yourself on being a perfectionist. Like, that's a good thing. Because, you know, even if you don't do everything right, knock, nod, nod, wink, wink, you do most things right, right? At least you're trying. But perfection as a concept, as an idea, is an illusion. The bar is always shifting. 
like it, it, it has to do with the people around you or how you grew up. I mean, there is no such thing as perfect. Go out in the wild and find me perfect. You can't find it. It's an opinion. In the real world, in the objective world, perfect doesn't exist. It is what it is. That's all. So perfectionism is a way of thinking. It's a faulty perspective that's an illusion based on a bunch of ideas. You've likely developed the mindset as a child. You were rewarded for being good, for working hard. Life was explained to you and set up for you in terms of punishment and reward. So perfectionism became a legit survival skill. And truth be told, it probably has served you in a lot of ways. There is no shame with having been a perfectionist. There's no shame. But the real question is, is it serving you now? And I can tell you, if, if I went to a recovery meeting and people say, you know, what's your drug of choice? My drug of choice was perfectionism, not alcohol. So let's run through the signs of perfectionism so that you can decide if this applies to you. Number one, your self-worth is tied to productivity, which means that resting, relaxing, and even sleeping makes you feel lazy. Like you feel like you have to earn that or explain that or justify it. Number two, you compare yourself to others. So you're constantly labeling everything and everyone as better or worse, which means you yourself swing between pride, maybe a little arrogance, and shame and fear when you screw it up because you think something is wrong with you because you didn't meet this imaginary bar of quote perfect. Number three, your identity changes around different groups of people. You change yourself to fit into the circumstance, which means that you probably don't actually know what you really like or what you really want. You kind of are parroting what you see in your environment. And if it's a game, you're playing to win um, based on the group ideals and not what you really want. The fourth sign of perfectionism is that you're motivated to earn rewards and avoid punishment. So what that means is you don't really enjoy the experience of most things. You just want to know how the outcome goes. Did you win or at least how did you rank? The fifth thing is that you're highly critical. You notice mistakes and imperfections in yourself and others. And that often leaves you uncomfortable because there's a right way and there's a wrong way about everything. And so you're constantly judging based on whatever you think in your brain is right or wrong, yourself and others you're judging. Number six, you feel like you have to prove yourself constantly. You want to prove that you're right. You want to prove that you're worthy. You want to prove that you're productive. You want to prove that you're strong and smart and that you don't need anything or anyone to help you. In fact, asking for help literally hurts if you're a perfectionist. Number seven is that pesky black and white thinking. You're constantly conjuring worst case scenarios and seeing good or bad, right or wrong, you know, success or failure. There's no spectrum for you. There's no grid or spectrum of, of okay. 
and you prefer to hear harsh truth to living in uncertainty in any day. You'd rather have bad news up front than sit around and ponder and not know if there's good news coming. And then number eight, you are setting unrealistic standards, mostly for yourself, but probably probably your spouse too, but, at le- but for sure yourself. And when you live by unrealistic standards, you're burning yourself out. And that leaves you exhausted, resentful of people who are not also doing that because that's not fair. And then, of course, burned out. So if those signs of perfectionism are ringing your bells, let me reiterate that alcohol is not your problem. And the only way to correct your drinking is to correct your perfectionistic thinking that is triggering your emotional disconnect. Now, I didn't know this stuff when I quit drinking. So I spent two years following rules, you know, bowing to the religion of black and white, all or nothing sobriety. I believed I was powerless over alcohol, even though I had realized that I was drinking too much and made the difficult decision on my own to stop. That's not powerless. I thought of myself as an alcoholic, even though I was 100% sober for almost three years. That's not an alcoholic. I was afraid that if alcohol ever touched my lips again, I would undo all the progress that I would made, that I'd made. Even though I had educated myself about alcohol, which I had not previously understood was a highly addictive depressant drug. And I have no desire to handicap my body or my brain with an anxiety inducing substance. So this idea that if alcohol ever touched my lips again, somehow I would go blind, deaf, and stupid and go back to that is really insulting. But, you know, when I quit drinking, I followed the conventional route. What did I do? I literally called the AA hotline, which, as you know, is the equivalent of ringing the bell and tapping out. I gave up and I surrendered. I did what I was told because I couldn't do it anymore. But after two years of sobriety, I realized I was still playing the alcohol game. I had just switched teams. Now, both teams do include fun t-shirts and internet memes. Uh, You get to spend time with your teammates and you get to strategize with each other about dealing with alcohol. But the cost of doing business on Team Drinker was thinking that something was wrong with me and not being able to trust myself. And then I realized that the cost of doing business on team non-drinker is also thinking that something is wrong with me and not being able to trust myself. So I'm going rogue, people. I've quit both teams. I can help you do the same. Together, we can disrupt the old ways that keep people trapped. Because contrary to popular belief, we do not have to live by other people's rules. Speed limits do not apply. (laughs) Emotional disconnect is the problem, not alcohol. And emotional sobriety is the solution. The only rule that you have to follow is your own intuition. 
And that can start right now. Not tomorrow, not Monday, not after you get home from vacation, now. Because the skill that you will learn in emotional sobriety is to notice what feels good and to do more of that. That's the whole purpose. Emotional sobriety is not to take away all the fun stuff. It's to give it back. You just have to stop thinking and start feeling. All that thinking that you've done and that you continue to do keeps you stuck in feelings of guilt, shame, frustration, and fear. I can teach you how to resolve those feelings. I can teach you how to think new thoughts. Because when you feel better, you do better. So instead of thinking that you will feel better when, instead of waiting to feel better until, let's say, when you've had enough time without a drink and you have thus proven yourself in control, or you'll feel better when you're working out five days a week and meal prepping on the weekends and meditating for an hour every day. Or you'll feel better when you resolve the problems in your relationship, either get the divorce or don't get the divorce or get therapy or whatever. Or you'll feel better when you get the new job or when you move into a new house. Or the biggest mind fuck of them all, you'll feel better when your kids get their shit together so that you can tell yourself that you were a good parent after all. Instead of thinking that you'll feel better when, you have to learn how to feel better now. And that is what I teach in my 12-week program, emotional sobriety. That is the practice of dealing with life as it is instead of how it should be or how it will be. Maybe something will happen, maybe it won't. Emotional sobriety is literally the antidote to the emotional disconnect that's wreaking havoc in your life. Emotional sobriety is a skill you can learn. It's literally about managing your mind and then also processing your feelings and learning how to regulate your nervous system. But I provide step-by-step strategies and self-coaching skills, so you can do it yourself, that teach you how to lean into the present moment so that you can process your thoughts, notice those perfectionistic beliefs that are in play, and choose to react in a different way so that you're not in the spin cycle of going from false bravado and back to shame. And there are so many benefits to practicing emotional sobriety. Um, I'm gonna list some here. Number one, you will know how to resolve low motivation, which is one of my biggest problems, with simple and clear action steps so that you're no longer held hostage by your funk moods. You have to learn to do shit even when you don't feel like it. And I teach you how to start with micro actions and mini goals and how to get yourself moving. Um, Another thing is you will stop worrying about what everyone else thinks. That's one of the hardest ones to let go of. But you're giving away your power in exchange for validation and approval, and that doesn't lead to confidence, even when it comes, because now your confidence is contingent on somebody else's opinion. I can teach you how to stop doing that. I will talk to you about boredom and loneliness, which are huge 
We're afraid to be alone. We don't know how to be alone. But I can teach you how when you are not to not feel isolated, but to instead enjoy solitude in a way that feels rejuvenating instead of worrying that every time you're alone, you actually kind of need to hire a babysitter for yourself. Also, uh, I will teach you the skill of dismissing your worrisome and intrusive thoughts. When you stay stuck in your head, you are blocking the joy in your body. You can't be present for the little moments that make your life meaningful. So just like today, I had to choose every time the thought, oh, I'm mad that my dog's gone. No, I'm glad that I'm in the woods. You know, and it's not an all or nothing thing. Like I said, you have to make that decision over and over. It's not a one and done, but it is a skill that gets easier. It's kind of like learning how to eat with your non-dominant hand. It's frustrating at first, but one of the skills I teach is how to measure your progress. Notice when you're doing it. Oh, look, I just did it for three whole minutes. Yay. And then, you know, a few months from now, you're like, oh, I just did it for three whole hours or three weeks. Like, I didn't ever even think about that again. Yay for me. You measure your progress and that fuels your motivation to keep going. Another thing that you're going to have to stop doing is the, the negative self-talk. You know, that is what's making you feel fat and old and undesirable. Feelings aren't facts. You are not fat and undesirable or old. I mean, let's put old in relative, but old is, a, old is relative, okay? You are the age that you are. And learning how to accept what is and choose thoughts that feel good about who you are and how your body looks and where you're at in life, you don't have to beat yourself up or feel bad and insecure about the wrinkles on your face. The wrinkles aren't the problem. It's your thoughts and feelings about the wrinkles. That's what I teach. And doing all of this will allow you to heal the shame and to process the guilt so that you can forgive yourself from past mistakes and move on with confidence. Okay? The past is in the past. It is what it is. And you can move forward. You do not have to live in the shadow of your past. And the only way to get beyond that is to deal with your feelings about the past and and also rewrite the story you know allow yourself to heal you look back at your story and make peace with it and take take get the takeaways from it finally one of the biggest things um, that this is going to help with emotional sobriety is that you're going to have to deal with the symptoms of post-acute withdrawal syndrome which is called pause if you've been a heavy drinker because the dopamine deficit is very real and it does last into the first year and maybe even a little beyond and it is very manageable with the right tools because it is an invitation to learn how to deal with your emotions, to respond to anxiety and depression differently instead of believing it's true. That's a skill. So emotional sobriety is one of the most effective tools against post-acute withdrawal syndrome. So um, emotional sobriety is the opposite of perfectionism in that you learn how to evaluate what is going on for you from the perspective of your body, your nervous system, how it's making you feel, instead of focusing on what you think or what other people think or how things look. You start paying attention to what you need in a no bullshit kind of way that dissolves the chaos. You know, if you need a nap because you're tired, 
You can't argue about that. There is no should be, you shouldn't need that, or you don't have time. I mean, it's just like dealing with a two-year-old who needs a nap. I mean, you need a nap. The nap is not the problem. It's your reaction, your thoughts and feelings about the fact that you need a nap that are the problem. That's what I teach you how to do. And let me tell you that emotional sobriety is a radical trust fall. Because up until now, you've believed that the only way to motivate yourself is with shame and fear and the imaginary rewards of perfectionism. Am I right? Aren't you kind of afraid to stop beating yourself up? Because if you do, you're going to turn into a lazy shrew who doesn't do anything but eats chips and watches Netflix. Like you've been under the false impression that the shame and the fear you're carrying is actually helping you. But look around. It's not. I'm telling you that learning how to notice and respect and respond to yourself in real time with compassion and love will free you not just from the alcohol trap, but all compulsive and self-defeating behaviors that are undermining your best life, your best self, who you want to be, what you want to do, how you want to feel. The only rule you need to follow is your intuition. You just need to learn to listen. That is the skill of emotional sobriety. So if you're interested in uh, joining my 12-week class or talking to me more about emotional sobriety, check the, sh- the link in the show notes. If you go to the, the next chapter, which is my course, my 12-week mastermind, there's a link in there where you can book a call with me. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please take the time to rate and review the show so that other people can find it. I really appreciate it. And check out the show notes for any resources I've mentioned, including links to follow me on Instagram and join my private Facebook group where I connect with my tribe every day. I love it in there and we have so much fun. And finally, if you're ready to redefine sobriety so that you can feel excited about quitting drinking, follow the link to my 10 days to spontaneous sobriety course, where I will help you eliminate, eradicate, obliterate, cancel your desire to drink because looking and feeling your best is addictive too. I'll see you soon.